Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Hey, how are we doing today? Hey, we're glad that you're here today. When you came in, uh, many of you received this Romans journal. If you did not receive one, would you just lift your hand? Uh, we've got a team of guys in the back that are going to help pass those out. Anybody? They, I think you guys did a great job. It doesn't look like anybody's hands up. Good job to the team that was working the doors. But uh, we're, we're excited that you got that. I'll talk about that more in just a minute. Uh, you heard about it a few minutes ago here from Trevor and Lauren, but there's a lot of great things coming up this summer. Sports camp starts tonight and youth camp and July 4th, so make plans to be with us. Uh, but, you know, as I think about the summer, I'm also reflecting on the spring and, and all that took place in the spring. One of the things that happened this past spring was that my two oldest sons, Cooper and Branson, and I went to Russia. We went to Moscow, uh, Russia, and uh, we did some sightseeing while we were there for sure. But the primary reason we went was to, to look at a possible new partner uh, in our missions program and to help train pastors and ministry leaders there in Moscow and Oriel, uh, Russia. And we had a great time. But while we were there, uh, it was still snowing. There was a ton of snow on the ground. It was still very cold. So as you can imagine, when we were you know, preparing to go on the trip, we packed. We were going to be gone a week. So we packed clothes for a week, which for my two sons, teenage sons, that meant two pair of underwear. Um, some of you will get that later. We were gone seven days. It's okay. Some of you will get it. It's fine. Um, so we, we packed that. We packed clothes. We packed heavy jackets and scarves and all that kind of stuff. But can you imagine if we would have gathered all of the things that we were going to take in our hands and in our arms and we just carried them with us like that? We just kind of walked through the airport, you know, with all of our clothes in our arms. And, you know, we took some snacks for the kids and, you know, made sure that, if, you know, if the food wasn't what they loved, they weren't really pumped about that, that they would still have something to eat. And so we took some crackers and chips and things, you know, Pop-Tarts, things for the breakfast just in case. And so can you imagine if we, like, carried, you know, all that stuff kind of stacked in our arms? No, of course we wouldn't do that. We took, you know, this, this new piece of technology. It's called a suitcase, right, luggage. And so what we did is we put our items in much bigger suitcases than this. We tried to figure out what is the maximum allowable size bag that we can take per person, and we want to take that. And so it's like, okay, you get 50 pounds. And so, you know, we weighted on the scale, and we did all the stuff, and we got there. Anybody ever had to unpack your bag at the airport and try to pack it into a carry-on? Or you're like, I don't even like that shirt anymore. I'm giving that away because I can't fit it in any of my bags. And so we got there, and we put, here's what happened. We had to change planes um, in a different country, and their baggage, uh, their, their baggage uh, systems or whatever are a little different. So we actually had to have a few less pounds at that part of the trip. And so we couldn't just kind of weigh it on the front end and go, hey, it's good all the way there. We had to weigh it and make sure that it would pass the second leg of that trip. And, and so what we did is we put all of our items in some suitcases, as many of you do when you travel. But do you remember when suitcases didn't have wheels. Anybody old enough to remember the good old days when we lived in black and white, you know, and like it, it, now they've added wheels, so you don't have to hold it by the side unless you want to, or the top unless you want to. They added wheels, and then they added this amazing thing. You can actually wheel your luggage through the airport and wherever you want to go, and isn't that just amazing? Like it's just, uh, first world problems, the handle on mine has broken, and so if I really want to wheel it, I've got to kind of hold it down here in my, my luggage. I, you know, I could get a new piece, but I really like that suitcase. And so I just hold it down here, you know, because I, I try to stack stuff up. This is what we're trying to do with this Roman series. What we want to do is we want to allow you this eight weeks of this summer 
to put as much of the foundational truths of Scripture and the book of Romans into something that you can carry with you by giving you handles. I know that when we think about our spiritual lives, when we think about a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a lot. There's a lot of things you can think about. There's a lot of things you can believe. There's a lot of things you can read. There's a lot of things that you can have conversations about with other people. But ultimately, if we're trying to figure out what do we believe and why do we believe it, what we want to do with this series is we want to give you some handles. We want to make it as easy for you to be able to kind of take hold of what you believe so that you know how to apply those things in your life so that you don't have to just leave those things at church. Like, well, I can't really carry this stuff with me to work and I can't really carry it in my life and it's, it's kind of cumbersome and every time I try to, I drop it and I don't know what to do and what to say. What we want to do is we want to give you these easy handles so that you can kind of put into your life these theological phrases and words and truths so that you can carry them with you everywhere that you go in the ways that you live. And so one of the ways that we're trying to do that is with this journal that we talked about just a second ago. So I'm going to ask you to take that out just for a second and just kind of put it in your hands there. And, you know, maybe you've already flipped through it. The, the, the only negative feedback we've gotten so far is that it's very small font. Um, and so if you, if, you, if you play the trombone, you know, with your reading, you kind of keep, keep putting it further and further and further out there. There is a distance you can't go any further. And so just get some readers for the next eight weeks and magnify that thing. But what we've tried to do is during these eight weeks, we wanted to give you a guide to help you walk through the book of Romans. There's 16 chapters in Romans. So each of the Sundays, whether it's me or one of our staff pastors, we're going to preach through two of those chapters. We may not preach the entire chapters. We may not preach an entire one chapter. We may focus on one verse or a character or a person within that verse or a phrase or a, some terminology there. But then on the Sundays, there's a place for you to make some sermon notes if you want to do that. And then beginning on Monday each week, starting tomorrow, we're giving you what we call a soap guide. Now, maybe you've heard that terminology here or somewhere else, but soap is not what you use in the shower. I mean, it is. Hopefully you use that. But we're talking about scripture, observation, application, and prayer. This is the, the method that we use here at Canton Church for Bible study. And we believe that it helps you to be able to process scripture in a really systematic way and to be able to walk through it in ways that help make sense and provide application for your lives. Because if we just read it and we don't do anything with it, then it's not really a lot of good to us. And so what this looks like is if, you know, I'm looking at week one Monday, it says that at the top there, Romans 1, 1 through 17. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And some of you are like, wow, I've never read 17 verses of scripture at one time in my whole life. Well, tomorrow's your day, right? It's okay. The blinking lights, we planned that. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't plan that. Just let it go. But you're like, I got 17 verses. I don't know if I can read that much. Maybe you break it up. Maybe if you don't read a lot of scripture on a regular basis, maybe you choose three verses or five verses. Maybe you choose 10 verses of scripture to read each day. I'm going to give you a cheat code here in just a second. I'm going to read one of these verses out loud today, and maybe that's the verse that you use tomorrow. And so what you would do is in your journal, you would write down either the, the scripture that's written there, you kind of write it out word for word, or maybe you would paraphrase it, and you would put the reference there, which verse that is, and then you would make an observation about it. Oh, this is, this is really deep. This is really good. This is thought-provoking. I'm not sure what this means. I wonder who he's writing to. I wonder what's happening here. I wonder what the context is. And then you would write an application out. Hey, I maybe need to do a better job of this in my life. Maybe I need to pray more. Maybe I need to worship more. Maybe I, I need to understand people in a better way. So you just write something that could be applied to your life. And then you would write maybe a one or two sentence prayer. God, help me to do whatever it is the application that I've observed out of this scripture. 
And so we, we want to help you. So each day, Monday through Saturday, there's the opportunity for you to soak through a specific part of the, the scriptures that we're, we're doing there. You'll see key terms. You'll see some, some phrases and some things that we're going to help you to, to, to use through this eight weeks. But we really would love for you to use this journal. So bring it with you every Sunday. Um, put your name in the front of it so we know it's yours. We'd love for you to utilize this journal. We believe it's one of the ways that you're going to put some handles on some theological phrases and terms uh, and ideas that help you to know what you believe, why you believe it, and why that's important. Because really the book of Romans for us, as we read it, it's one of those letters in the New Testament. Many of you know this, you're familiar with this perhaps, but the New Testament starts in the, the four books of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four books that really contain the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And then the book of Acts, as I've described it for years and years, the book of Acts is what I call the linchpin of the New Testament. Because what it does is it takes the ministry of Jesus and his disciples and it introduces and starts that early first century church. And then the rest of the New Testament is really centered around either the characters or the places, those people or places, where the first century church is being organized, it's being established. And so when you read some of these books of the Bible, some of them are actually just letters that are written to the churches that have been established that you might have read about in Acts or there in other places in the New Testament. So let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul is the accepted author of the book of Romans. As you read tomorrow in Romans chapter 1, you're going to come very quickly to Paul introducing himself as the writer of this book. He's actually giving it orally, and someone is writing it down, perhaps as many as three different people writing it down, which comes at the very end of the last chapter. They kind of talk about who's collecting these thoughts and writing them down. But the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Romans. Well, the Apostle Paul is introduced to us in the book of Acts. He's someone who had this incredible... Incredible Jewish heritage and history, and now he's overseeing some of the stoning of these uh, Jewish people and these followers of the way. And then he has this amazing experience with God. God transforms his life, turns him towards a, a being a follower of the way himself, and he begins to proclaim and preach and teach the message of Jesus Christ. And he begins to establish the ministries and the churches of this early first century church, along with the other apostles. Well, he takes these various missionary journeys, and if you have one of those old-school printed Bibles, maybe in the back of that old-school printed Bibles, or you can even Google it, you can see the various missionary journeys of Paul. On the third missionary journey, he finds himself in the city of Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth was a place that we would, we would know because it was a part of the establishment of the early church, but also because Paul wrote two letters that we have to that church. They go by the names of First and Second. Corinthians as he's writing to that church in Corinth. Now, as he's in Corinth, he writes the letter that we have that's Romans, and he writes it to a group of people in Rome. So on his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, somewhere around the mid-50s AD, so 55, 56, 57 or so in that time period, he's in the city of Corinth writing a letter to a, a group of Christians in the city of Rome. And so when we have these various letters of the New Testament, it's important for us to understand why is he writing the letter. Like the, the, the first and second Corinthians letters, those are in response to letters that that church wrote to Paul in advance. So they wrote Paul a letter and said, hey, here's some things that are happening as we're establishing the church, as we're becoming a community of faith. There's some things that we're trying to figure out. And we need you to help us understand. You're not here. You established the church. You've put leaders over us. But we need you to help us understand how we should organize, how we should interact with one another, how we should serve God. So many of the things that are outlined in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are Paul responding to the questions that they've asked in their letter, which we do not have a copy of. 
Then we come to letters like Romans, where Paul acknowledges in Romans chapter 1, I haven't come to see you yet, but I can't wait to get there. So he's not writing in response to something that he's observed while he was there. He's writing in anticipation of that. Now, the city of Rome there, that, that place of Rome, in this time in history is an important piece. It's, it's really where trade is centered and culture is centered and learning is centered. And at that time in history, there were about one million people in Rome. And that's a lot of people, obviously. But just think about this. Those one million people were concentrated in about 10 square miles or so. So there's a lot of people in a little amount of space. And so one million people in about 10 square miles. And of those one million people, there are about 50,000 who are Jews. So 950,000 are not Jews. And that's important for us to understand because Paul is writing to these people in Rome. And who's he writing to? Predominantly, he's writing to the group of Christians who are there in Rome, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, which is a phrase we're going to hear in just a minute, which are non-Jewish people. He's writing to them if they have already chosen to follow after the teaching, the life, the ministry of Jesus, and the apostles that are established in the early church. And so now that I've kind of set up some context, I want to jump in to Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. And I'm not going to preach through the whole chapter, both chapters. I just want to kind of hit some high points that I think set us up for the next eight weeks. Paul introduces himself. He's like, I'm Paul. Here's who I am. Here's what you need to know about me. And I love this in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. He says this, For I, Paul, am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Right up front in the book of Romans, as he's writing to these Christians in Rome, in anticipation of him showing up there one day, which he eventually would as he's waiting to stand trial, by the way, he says, hey, listen, here's what you need to know about me. Here's who I am. And I want you to know some stuff about me, but what you really need to know, kind of the centrality of who I am, is that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it has the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And ultimately, that's the central theme of the entire book of Romans, is the gospel. You're going to hear about laws, you're going to hear about Jewish customs, you're going to hear about some historical things, you're going to hear about a lot of stuff. But ultimately, it all comes back to the gospel, and Paul defines it here in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's good news. That's what we read about in the gospels, that, that the gospel is good news. And so often, if we're not careful, we make the gospel bad news. It's like, you're a sinner, I have the gospel, you're a terrible person. The reality of the gospel is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which we can talk about next week, but guess what? He provided everything that we would need to make sure that we have the grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness of God so that all could be grafted into the family of God. That salvation is available to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that's important for us because if we're not careful as we read through Romans over these next eight weeks and as we engage in life with other people, we make the gospel something that it's not. The gospel is good news. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And if we don't walk around with a smile on our face recognizing that we hold good news that people are in need of, that we know what, what God wants to do in every person's life, that if they choose to believe, they can be saved no matter how far gone they think they are. God is enough for them. That's good news. You should walk around with a smile on your face that says, I, not because I'm something special, I've received this incredible gift from God, and I would love to help you find that gift for yourself. And so Paul says right up front, here's who I am, and here's what you need to know. I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
And it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And then he switches on a dime. You know what he goes to next? The wrath of God. That one's tough. That one's tough. If I were telling you, like, hey, I want to tell you a little bit about my life, I probably wouldn't start with, let me tell you about the worst spanking I ever got as a child. But that's kind of what Paul does right here. Paul's like, hey, I am so excited to write this letter to you, the you Roman people. I'm excited. This is going to be awesome. Let me tell you, God's got wrath, and he's waiting on you to distribute it, right? I mean, that's kind of what Paul does right here in chapter 1, but ultimately he's setting us up. He wants us to know that no matter if you're this Jewish person who's kept the law or you're a Gentile that thinks, hey, now the gospel's available to me. That's good news. That's awesome. He says, yeah, 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 but here's what you don't need to miss. There is a coming judgment. Like God is holy and he's righteous and he's just. And out of his justice and out of his holiness and out of his righteousness, he must punish sin. And I would love to be able to stand here every week and skip over that part. I would love to stand up and go, hey, let's all feel good about it. This is going to be awesome. I got a smile on my face. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And there's some other stuff, but I don't want to talk about it. So let's all go home and feel good about it. No, no, no. There is a coming judgment. God is holy. He's pure. He's blameless. He's righteous. And yet, he recognizes that I am not. And so when he recognizes that I'm not, he says, hey, here's what I want to do. I want to provide what you will need to be able to stand before me a holy and righteous God. So that when I have to, I have to administer my wrath and my judgment towards humanity. When it comes your turn, you can say, hey, listen, I am imperfect. I have fallen short of the glory of God. But I have received salvation, which is the power of God for all who believe. And I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. And he's enough for me. And he says, you're right. That's what Paul's setting us up for. That's exactly what he's setting up. So he says, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's God's wrath. Man, this is who God is. And where I want us to spend the rest of our time today is in chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 begins with this really challenging part of Scripture towards me and towards you. And I've asked them to put it up on the screen. So this is about five verses in a row. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to kind of read it together so you can kind of look on the screen nearest to you. If you've got a Bible or an app, there, you can go there with me. This is the NIV translation. This is what it says, beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, next slide, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Ouch. As I was reading through Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 this week in anticipation of our time together, I was confronted by the truth of these five verses to begin Romans chapter 2. i got to be honest with you. I'm not going to indict anybody in the room. I'll indict me. It's pretty easy for me to slip into being judgmental. 
Nobody else in the room, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I know I would feel terrible because I'm the only one. I know. But it's pretty easy for me to slip into being judgmental. I mean, it's pretty easy for me to look at other people and go, man, look what they're doing wrong. Look what's happening to them. Look at their bad decisions. Look at what they're doing there. Look at what I know nobody else does that. But I have these conversations in my head sometimes as I look at other people and I go, look at them. I'm judging them. And I'm not just talking about observing them. I'm talking about when I make a conscious decision to evaluate what I think their motives and their intent are, what I think their behavior is based on, and then I immediately jump to the end of the story and I say, hey, you're going to hell. Hey, you're a terrible person. Hey, you could do better than that. Like you're, and I immediately jump. Because when I'm talking about the word judge here or judgment, all the way back in the original language, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with this idea that we are determining right and wrong and condemning someone for their actions. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us right here is he says, listen, if I, a mere human think that my responsibility is to judge other people's actions, what I don't recognize is that I am just as guilty. That it's easy for me to identify in other people what they're doing wrong, but by doing that, I'm skipping over what I have done wrong. That God's judgment, which will come, His wrath, which is coming, is based on God, which means it's based on truth. But when I do it, it's based on lies because I am sitting in a position that I cannot rightly hold. And that's because this truth. There is a judge. You're just not him. I'm not him. There is a judge. I'm not skipping over that. There is a judge. There is a judgment. But I'm not the judge. And you're not the judge. And it's not our job to judge other people and condemn them. We should have a completely different response. And so I started thinking about this idea of judgment and and really where it comes from. And I was thinking about this week. I think there's primarily two reasons that I, nobody else in the room because nobody else does this. I think there's two primary reasons that I judge people. The first of those is it's so easy to recognize someone else's guilt. Like, I, I, I admit, at least one time in my life, I've sat in traffic court. Just at least once. And I would sit there and I would listen to these people's stories. And I got to be honest, I'm not up at the front. I'm in the back. But when I listen to these people tell their stories, I'm like, that guy's guilty. He needs to go to jail. But when I get up there, I'm like, now here's what you don't understand. Here's what you, we were going down a hill. Like it was down the hill and the cop was in the woods. That should be illegal, right? Because I'm pleading my case. But from the back of the room, when I'm listening to their stories, I'm like, you're guilty. That story don't even make sense, right? It's easy to see guilt in other people. The second reason that I judge people is because it's easier for me to take the focus off of me. I judge people because it's easy to recognize their guilt, but I also judge people often because I'm insecure and defensive about my own guilt. In order for me to feel good about me, I got to make them feel bad about them. Like it's easier for me not to focus on what's wrong with me when I try to make sure everybody knows what's wrong with them. So it's easy to recognize their guilt. And sometimes I, in doing that, like I, I don't recognize my own guilt, but when I do, I just try to cover it up and I try to project on them. Like you're guilty, you fall short, you make mistakes, let's focus on you. And in doing so, I skip what's wrong with me. When I judge others, 
I actually reveal my own guilt. When I judge others, I set myself up for judgment. That's what Paul said. When I judge, I'm actually bringing judgment on myself, and I'm actually multiplying the wrath of God towards me when I try to take the wrong place of judgment over other people. And when I judge others, I actually miss the point of God's kindness. Because the reality is he could judge us right now. God could choose right now. This is the moment. You gotta stand for account of everything you've done, every thought you've thought, every indiscretion. This is the moment of judgment. He could call us into judgment right now. But he doesn't. He's kind. And he's patient. And he's forbearing. And 1 Peter says that just as he was patient in the days of Noah, he's being patient now. And I've preached this message before, but like I, when I think about the story of Noah, I don't think about God's patience. I think about the fact that God flooded the whole earth and killed everybody except Noah's family. But the reality is he told Noah about the need for judgment, and then he waited 100 years for Noah to build the ark so that humanity could be saved. He did the same thing for me and you. He knew that while we were yet sinners, we would spend an eternity away from God. And so he sent Jesus, and now he's being patient and kind for thousands of years so that you and I can find salvation through Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. And so he's patient, and he's kind. He could call us into judgment now, but he chooses not to. And so he's patient, and he's kind. And so then the question for me becomes, how do I respond? How do I respond? If my natural inclination is to judge and to condemn then what should be fighting against that natural inclination? Instead of the flesh desire to condemn, what if the Spirit was trying to compel me to lead them towards Christ? Instead of condemnation, what if I actually pointed them towards the kindness of God? Instead of saying, you're wrong, you're a sinner, you're rotten, what if I actually said, Jesus loves Jesus forgives, he's enough, and you're not too far gone. There's two responses. Which one do I choose to use? Now, I recognize that as some of you are sitting here, you've already written me off. I know, because I are you, okay? You've already written me off. In my notes, here's what I wrote. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I don't have a right to observe sin in someone else's life and call it out? I don't have a right to speak up for injustice. I don't have a right to speak up for those things that are against the law and the nature of God. If that's what you heard me say, you misheard me. What I said is I'm not the judge and neither are you, but there is a judge. There's several places throughout Scripture where I am given instructions on how to approach someone who is living in a sinful lifestyle or behavior. Matthew chapter 18 is one of those places, and it talks about this idea that if someone's done something against you, or you see something, observe something in someone, how should you approach them? And in Matthew 18, it uses a couple of really important words. It says, if you see your brother or sister, it implies relationship. It implies that there's a closeness there where I have the right to speak to you about who you claim to be. The problem for us so many times is that we choose to judge from afar. Very rarely do we judge up close. Like when was the last time you walked up to a stranger and said, you're a terrible person? I mean, other than when they're being a terrible person. You understand what I'm saying? Like when was the last time you walked up to someone and you really called out the sin in their life when you didn't know them before that moment? 
That's not what we usually do. What we usually do is, is we talk about them on social media. And we tell other people about how terrible that person is. We judge from afar. But what the scriptures tell us, and it starts in Matthew 18, is it says there's a process here based out of an entirely different motivation that says if my brother or sister has done something, then I approach them and say, hey, I love you. And I want better for you. And I want to help you live according to what you say your life is called to be about. You say you want to be a Christian. You say you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You say you're trying to make decisions that lead you into a growing relationship with God. Here's some things I see in you that I think you could do better. Here's some things that I think you need to give to God. And then scripture says, if they push back, if they don't receive what you have, then you don't write them off and go, well, you're a terrible person and I knew it anyway. And you walk away. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says, no, you leave and you go get another brother and sister. And you come back and you say, hey, Let's try this again. I want you to hear my heart. I love you. I want the best for you. I want you to be all that you claim to be and all that you desire to be. And so let me help you walk this journey out. And if they push back and they don't receive what you have, then you go back. And now you get your whole small group. It's like I got to get the whole life group together. Let's go eat Mexican. Let's go talk over chips and salsa. And let's just say, hey, listen, we love you. We want what's best for you. We want to help you. There's a process, and there's an entirely different motivation from me judging you from afar to say, you're a terrible person, you're condemned to hell, and the motivation that says, you're my brother or you're my sister, and I want what's best for you. It's not about condemnation. It's about reconciliation. It's about repentance. It's about exhibiting the kindness of God towards someone else to say, let me lead you towards a God that loves you. And the desire is more for you. It's an entirely different motivation. But see, if I'm being honest, just me, nobody else in the room, judgment often comes out of a sense of self-righteousness. That I'm enough. I've done enough. I've checked all the right boxes. I'm Christian enough. I'm spiritual enough. I'm righteous because of me. And look at what Paul says to end chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. He goes back to talking about Jews. He says, A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, I don't want to go too deep here talking about circumcision. But let me just say this. Circumcision was a part of the Old Testament law that was an outward sign of the covenant relationship between God's chosen people and himself. And early on as a part of this, if you were going to be a part of the followers of the way, all the way until the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15, there was this conversation that like if you convert to following Jesus... What do you have to do? Is circumcision on that list or is it not? And what Paul is challenging these, these readers of this letter in Rome to understand is he says, listen, you can check all the boxes. You can do all the outward things. You can go to church. You can be in a life group. You can give. You can serve the poor. You can do all the right things and check all the boxes. But you are not enough because of what you do on the outside. 
You are only enough because of what God has done on the inside of you. Like if I look at people on the outside, I could actually miss that there has not been an inward change in them. But out of my judgment towards them, I see all the boxes checked on the outside and I say, wow, you're a great person. And I'm actually sitting in the wrong seat of judgment and I'm missing the mark because I cannot see circumcision of the heart. But what God says through the writing of Paul to you and I today in Canton, Georgia, is this. It's not about what you do on the outside that matters. It's about what God is doing on the inside that matters most. Now, let me just quickly say, if you are the person that has received judgment, somebody came at you, they called something out in you, they said something to you, you probably got defensive, you probably got hurt, you probably got mad. How dare you? The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged, or something like that, I think, in there somewhere. So you shouldn't judge me. Can I say to you with all the love in my heart today, don't miss the fact that there is a judgment coming. And if you can allow yourself to push back from the hurt and push back from the pain and to push back from the insecurity and to push back from the fear that you may have that caused that reaction towards whatever they said or did, which probably was done out of the wrong motive, what if what they said carried enough truth that it compels you to change? What if you claim to be something but you're living contrary to it? Maybe their motives were wrong. Maybe the relationship wasn't strong enough for them to say what they said to you. Maybe you're listening to me today and you're mad about what I'm saying. I'm sorry, but not really. Because there is judgment coming. And the question is, what are we going to do in anticipation of that? So there's two responses to today. How do I respond to those who I could judge? How do I respond to those who I could judge? Like I look at them and I see there's something wrong with them. They shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be saying that. They shouldn't be living like that. They shouldn't be talking like that. They shouldn't be making decisions like that. And my natural inclination is to judge them and to say something about them and to say something to But I don't have the relationship to do that. How do I respond? Do I exhibit the kindness of God, the patience of God, the forbearance of God, to take the time to establish relationship where I have permission then to speak into their life out of love? Do I pray for them? It's tough to criticize somebody you're praying for. It's tough to criticize somebody you're praying for. The second response to today's message is this. Is it possible that I have positioned myself, that I think God will withhold judgment from me because of what I've done on the outside. But there's still a work that God needs to do on the inside. I've checked all the boxes. Everybody in the room thinks I'm a good person. Anybody that I have conversation with thinks I've got it all together. I go to church, I serve, I give. I brought my Bible today. Don't they know that? Like, I'm a good person. I got all the boxes. I'm... But actually what we've done is we've positioned ourselves as our own righteousness. When we actually need to say, God, I need you to do the circumcision of my heart. 
I need you to do a little heart surgery. I need you to do a work in me. Change me. Convict me. Call me to something more. Because here's the truth today, and here's how we're going to end. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We can't do enough. But Jesus did enough. Today we're going to take communion in just a moment as the response to what we've seen and heard. We're going to recognize that because of Jesus Christ, we can stand before God. Not out of our own holiness, our own righteousness, but because of Jesus, stand before God and say, God, when you look at me, see your son. His blood covers my sins. He loves me. He's forgiven me. And I find my identity in him. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Nobody's looking around. If you would say to me today, Jeremy, as I was listening to you talk, I was recognizing that I'm, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I need God to do a work in my heart and my life today. I don't want another moment to pass by before I ask him to be the Lord and Savior of my life. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at and put it right back down. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, it's not a salvation issue, but what I'm asking God to do is to help me to replace my condemnation of others with the kindness of God. That I would stop sitting in a place of judgment towards others but instead, in relationship with others, I would speak the truth in love. And where relationship doesn't exist, I would pray and ask God to do his work. I want to exhibit the kindness of God towards others. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. God, I thank you today that you're enough. I pray now for every person that's responded to you today to ask you to be the Lord and Savior of their life. Forgive their sins. There is a judgment coming. But God, we thank you that... In your sovereignty and in your grace, you anticipated that judgment and you provided Jesus. And so, God, we pray now for every person that's accepting you as the Lord and Savior of their life. God, I pray now for every hand that was lifted to say, help us to replace condemnation towards others with the kindness of God towards others. Let us exhibit your patience and your kindness and your forbearance. God, we thank you for what you desire to do through us to compel others to find life in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.